The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Friday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Julia Borston. Carl and Deirdre are off. Coming up on the show today, big day for enterprise earnings. Interviews with the CEOs of HP Enterprise, PagerDuty, and MongoDB as a couple of those stocks rocket higher. Plus, Apple hits pause, delaying the rollout of its feature to scan devices for child sexual abuse imagery that attracted so much controversy. And then a sharp rebuttal from Robinhood on payment for order flow, hitting back at the SEC, arguing they're the ones on the side of the consumer. More on those stories ahead. We're going to start with a trio of earnings movers, HPE, PageDuty, MongoDB, all out with results. The uh, veteran in the space, HPE, the only company to report a profit, ongoing component constraints leading management to warn of limited upside, also saying they raised prices in response to the shortage. PagerDuty and MongoDB, younger companies, both huge growth stories, revenue up 33 and 44 percent, respectively. Both of those stocks surging higher by double digits. The seismic shift to the cloud evident in other earnings as well. Broadcom beat on the top and bottom line. CEO Hock Tan attributed the performance largely to demand from cloud as well as 5G, broadband, and wireless. All this comes a day after Asana announced record revenues, saw its stock surge 15%. Uh, Julia, we also see Atlassian up a healthy amount, uh, around 3%, I believe, uh, this morning. Also in that collaboration space, with Atlassian, these smaller, nimble companies, software companies in the enterprise looking to enhance both the way engineers do business and the way uh, the data center runs in the case of PagerDuty doing quite well. Yeah, and I would say, John, that all of these stocks, the success of all of these stocks points to the fact that the pandemic really kicked off an acceleration of the shift of everything into the cloud, into digital, and also just a lot more accessibility of all that data. Some of these tools really, such as MongoDB, really enabling companies to better access their data, analyze that data. And I think that this just really speaks to where we are right now, John. I mean, if you think about how much the world has changed since before the pandemic, and it looks like it's not going back, right? Yeah, it does look that way. And Expectations play a lot into this as well. We talked about C3 AI earlier this week, had them on with Google Cloud announcing this partnership. The stock went up, then they announced earnings. The stock went down. Uh, but remember, that's a stock that had rocketed so much out of the IPO. Uh, it, it's had some tough comps just sort of month to month. PagerDuty, on the other hand, we're going to talk to Jennifer Tejada later in the hour. People had been doubting it, but these results, boy, put pressure on those who wanted to think things were going to the downside. 
Well, we've got a great lineup of CEOs today to talk about all of this, starting off with enterprise software player HPE, which reported earnings last night with third quarter revenue of $6.9 billion, up just 1% from a year ago, but a beat all around for the company and raising guidance as well. With us now is HPE CEO Antonio Neri. Antonio, thanks so much for joining us. I want you to break down the underlying trends of the business because there was a big divergence between your very divisions, some of the younger, smaller ones growing very fast, some of the older ones not doing as well. Well, good morning, Julia. Thanks for having me today. I think we had an impressive quarter on all metrics as you look at them. Uh, we, we grew revenues, but most importantly, we have very strong demand across the portfolio from edge to cloud. And our growing businesses are humming. You know, to your point, our intelligent edge was up 23%. Our HPC AI data-driven businesses were up also 9%. And our as-a-service, which is a long-term star, North Star for our transformation as a company, uh, grew 46% in orders. And our core businesses did well. You know, they stabilized despite the supply constraint. But we also had up middle single digits uh, growth in demand. All in all, uh, we see strong demand in the market and we improve profitability uh, quite significantly, which also translated year to date in a, in a record break and free cash flow. So we are very pleased with the performance. I think our strategy to become the edge to cloud platform company is resonating in the market. Yeah, Antonio, a pretty dramatic uh, shift towards that as a service business. Um, very impressive shift there. But my question is, as you look at demand and you also look at supply constraints, tell us about your outlook going forward. You did raise your guidance, but what is the outlook, especially for how those supply constraints are going to play into things? Well, you know, from the demand perspective, we continue to be very bullish. When you think about the way we're working today, we see uh, increased demand in secure connectivity. We see, obviously, increased demand cloud everywhere, where the cloud experience have to be deployed, not just in a public cloud, but on-prem at the edge. And we see a big demand with everything around data insights. And so that's why our edge to cloud strategy is perfectly positioned for those three trends that we see going forward. Now, from the supply perspective, obviously, we are going through a, a patch here that will take uh, probably another two to three quarters to get out of it. But we have done a lot of work. We have done a lot of work mitigating those challenges, which we started last Q4 2020. In fact, our inventory levels have gone up 1.3 billion, and we have worked with our suppliers. But we have one point of differentiation, Julia, which is our engineering capabilities. Our engineering team is the best in class to be able to swap components and be able to mitigate those challenges. But all that said, we factor all these challenges, our guidance, and that's what we said in Q4. We are very comfortable with the consensus on revenue. We believe we have some upside. And at the same time, you know, we think about the 2022 is going to be a very strong IT buying cycle. Antonio, tell us from the strategic point of view, heading into 22 and even beyond, is there going to be more leaning toward M&A or more leaning toward uh, partnership and dependency on the channel? We're seeing, I think, a lot of both right now uh, gearing up, but different companies taking uh, different strategies, you know, either trying to pay up for younger, more nimble companies that they think they can integrate into their own system or trying to partner up uh, and get to market using uh, the distribution of others in the channel. 
Well, uh, John, I think it's a combination of three things in my mind. You know, as I think about innovation, I think about the innovation in three legos of stool. One is the organic innovation. All our plans uh, for 2022 at this point in time has been factoring that. But at the same time, you have to use M&A to accelerate that strategy where it makes sense on a very stringent return on investor capital. Valuations are high, but that said, you know, we continue to do M&A in, in our own uh, portfolio. In fact, this past quarter, we closed three acquisitions, Zerto in the data protection, ransomware, Determine AI in the training of the AI models, and Ampol, which is a big data analytics uh, component for uh, developers and business analysts. So we, we do both, but at the same time, you have to work with the ecosystem. And I think that's the advantage that Hewlett Packard Enterprise has, is one of our crown jewels, John, is our go-to-market, the reach through the channel partners, through both uh, SIs, uh, distributors, and obviously by the resellers, and as well the ISV ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And that's why our edge to cloud platform is open and secure so we can integrate them in our strategy going forward. Well, Antonio, we're gonna have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us on the heels of that earnings report, HPE stock up just under 1%. Thank you. And new this morning, Apple delaying its announced child safety features after attracting controversy over plans to use an anonymized system to check U.S. customers' iCloud photo libraries against a national database for child sex abuse material. The company now saying it's going to postpone those plans, saying in a statement, quote, based on feedback from customers, advocacy groups, researchers, and others, we have decided to take additional time over the coming months to collect input and make improvements before releasing these critically important child safety features. Julia, it doesn't sound like they intend to not do this. They still call it critically important. They're calling this uh, a delay. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to reconsider besides perhaps the messaging around it, but there is room, I guess, to prompt people to make sure they understand when they connect to iCloud uh, what what they're connecting to and what scans their libraries will be subject to. Yeah, John, I mean, Apple has aligned itself so closely with this idea of privacy and security. And this is obviously a very important issue, but also a complicated one. It does seem like they're going to move forward, but we should watch out for them to make some changes. I think when it comes to these issues of, of the iOS platform in particular, it's all about allowing people to opt in or opt out. Uh, but I think that'll be probably the direction they go there, John. Yeah, interestingly, people seem more worried about what they might do next after this as opposed to this itself, right? At least that's what people are saying. Apple, meanwhile, also dealing with allegations of workplace harassment. For that, we go to Josh Lifton. Josh? So, John, here's what we know so far. The U.S. National Labor Relations Board is reviewing two complaints against Apple filed by employees. Ashley Jovic filed a complaint on August 26, citing harassment by a manager, among other complaints. Cher Scarlett filed a complaint on September 1, saying the company repeatedly stopped discussions of pay among employees. The NLRB did not respond to CNBC, but Apple did, saying, we are and have always been deeply committed to creating and maintaining a positive and inclusive workplace. We take all concerns seriously, and we thoroughly investigate whenever a concern is raised, and out of respect, 
for the privacy of any individuals involved. We do not discuss specific employee matters. Now, the NLRB says it receives up to 30,000 charges each year. Each charge is then investigated by agents and evaluated by regional directors. Typically, the agency says a decision is made about the merits of a charge within weeks. Remember, Apple does directly employ more than 90,000 people here in the U.S. Back to you all. Huh. Yeah, I think uh, what's interesting here is not so much that there are a couple of complaints, because, as you said, up to 30,000 of these a year is that they're coming from inside Apple. And maybe this is another result of a tight labor market, particularly when it comes to tech talent. Uh, Julia, usually we don't hear Apple employees saying much of anything, but lately uh, around issues of who Apple is hiring or, uh, you know, Apple's policies on work from home. And now this being a bit more vocal and perhaps not afraid of getting fired. Perhaps not afraid of getting fired, but also, John, I do think that we are living in a post-MeToo world where there is a sense that there should be a zero-tolerance uh, policy around these things. So I think that people are particularly sensitive. I also think we can't underestimate the power of technology tools themselves to enable people to talk about their complaints and to get these conversations started. I don't know if people would be complaining as much or even feeling like they could speak up if it weren't for things like those Slack channels. Uh, so that's a, an interesting piece of this as well. Meanwhile, yesterday we brought you the news that YouTube Music hit 50 million paid subs. Today we speak with the top exec at YouTube. That's next. A big hour of Tech Tech is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Let's get a gut check on NVIDIA, up 2% so far this morning. Jeffrey's maintaining its buy rating, upping its price target to 260. That's about 15% upside from here. The firm sees accelerating growth in both NVIDIA's data center and software segments. Stocks had a huge run this year, up more than 70%, hitting an all-time high again this week, Julia. 
And YouTube announcing a big milestone. YouTube Premium, which includes YouTube's music service, has reached 50 million total subscribers. That number does include those on a free trial. But that total is up dramatically from 35 million in October of 2020. This new number makes YouTube Music the fastest growing music streaming service. According to research firm Media, it now accounts for about 8 percent of global streaming market share. Joining us now for more is YouTube's Chief Business Officer, Robert Kinsel. Robert, thanks for being us today. With, uh, we lost Robert Kinsel, but he is going to be joining us soon. Meantime, we will... Oh, I think we have Robert Kinsel. Robert, are you there? I'm here, Julia. I'm here. What, what would live television be without some technical difficulties? Thank you for joining us to talk about this 50 million milestone. I remember so long ago, people were skeptical of this idea that you could convince people to pay for something they were so used to getting for free. Explain to us how YouTube Music is positioned to compete against Spotify and also against YouTube Music. I'm sorry, Spotify also against Apple Music. Uh, thank you, Julia. It's great to be here. Um, I think uh, what, what's, what's truly incredible that this number is coming on the heels of our um, uh, Q2 earnings call, where we announced $7 billion in ad revenue and 83% year-on-year growth. So uh, it's going precisely to your question that it is possible to have a very successful advertising business and at the same time very successful and fast-growing subscription business on the same platform. And our pitch to the music industry uh, and our uh, value proposition to users has been twin engine, twin engine of growth, meaning we're providing the best of what the user wants. And, uh, and if you focus on the user and you serve them well, it's showing up in the business results. And so we couldn't be thrilled to have both engines uh, of our twin engine growth uh, firing on all cylinders. Um, but Robert, you know, YouTube Music is still much smaller than Spotify. We don't have exact quarterly numbers in Apple Music, but presumably smaller than that one as well. Do you see it as competing directly with those services for subscribers? And how much more room do you think there is to grow this service? What do you think the potential addressable market is? We think it's quite large. Um, so so to, to answer your first question, we're not uh, we're not looking at direct competition because we're we're a somewhat di different consumer experience. Uh, obviously, we're a video platform, uh, which has uh, audio subscription service combined with video. So the user experience is richer in terms of the volume of content that we have, uh, as well as in, in terms of the formats available to users. So our, our expenses uh, is different in that regard. But what we really focus on is this twin engine of growth. We don't compare ourselves on a single revenue stream to anyone. We're looking at the combined uh, combined strength of our business and the value prop to the users. And on that, we feel we have a very, very strong story to tell. And, and you know, the numbers are speaking for themselves. Yeah, Robert, in a way, that 50 million number is an understatement when we consider the, the raw number of music videos and then, you know, lyric videos that are up there. People experience music on YouTube in so many ways. So tell me, where does music fit in YouTube's business strategy both from a subscription point of view and the loyalty and subscribers that it drives there and from an advertising and engagement point of view versus the, the, the whole portfolio of content that you have on YouTube? 
So, so actually, I, I love the way you framed it. Uh, you said there is a there there is a breadth of content, not just the canonical videos, but also also lots of other ancillary content surrounding music, which is exactly what I was referring to um, before. Uh, that it's a very very music rich experience. I think the so if, if you step back with YouTube, roughly half of YouTube's watch time is creators. You know, this is a creative class, creator economy that didn't exist before YouTube. Uh, 25% is music and 25% is media companies. That's sort of the rough uh, lay of the land. So um, anything that reaches 25% of YouTube is quite large. And, um, and uh, what's happening today for music is that it's really getting consumed, not just in the canonical videos provided by the record labels and artists themselves, but also is consumed in lots of other videos that uh, various users and other creators are uploading, which is expanding the business. That's why we see the uh, the uh, music uh, opportunity for the industry very, very large. Uh, it's it's expanding its reach. Rob it's expanding use case. And Robert, I want to talk a little bit about creators beyond music. You know, YouTube is the original creator business sharing revenue, but now you face so much more competition, whether it's TikTok or Snap or Instagram, all of these platforms really trying to incentivize creators to produce content for those platforms, share revenue. They're even making a big push behind e-commerce to get those creators uh, to give creators the opportunity to monetize that way. How are you competing for creators right now? And do you see e-commerce as playing into that? Um, yes. So, so we love the fact that other platforms are trying to pay creators. Um, we've been at it since 2007 when we launched the YouTube Partner Program and share more than half of our revenue. Uh, recently, we released stats on uh, paying out more than $30 billion over the last three years to creators, which is a very significant number. And, and if you continue to obviously track our earnings call and how much uh, revenue we generate, you can calculate how much we're sharing with creators. So having said all that, um, in, in sort of the closed Media platforms such as Netflix, Amazon, etc. There's multiple different players paying for content. In our case, it has been just YouTube. So we welcome others doing the same because it is then strengthening the overall creator economy, and it's um, you know and it's fueling the flywheel that uh, that we're having. So so we like that. How do we compete uh, with them? We focus on the user again, focusing on making sure that we provide the right monetization tools. In case of YouTube, I recently released the blog. Uh, about the 10 different ways that you can monetize on YouTube if you're a creator. It's a pretty significant um, uh, to, uh, you know, a suite of tools that is allowing those who know how to mass an, uh, amass an audience to amass a significant amount of revenue. And that's exactly what's happening. So our competition based on how do we provide them with the most amount of reach and how do we provide the most amount of monetization that rewards their work. And we've just relentlessly been on this path uh, since YouTube has been started. Well, well fascinating to watch me, the expansion of that. Let me address your commerce question. Yeah, of course, we're almost out of time here, but a quick final thought on commerce. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the final thought is uh, we think commerce is changing. There's lots of uh, lots of uh, movement towards social commerce that video platforms like YouTube will obviously play a role in. So we're very busily working on it and making sure that that monetization option for creators, whether they're selling their own products or other people's products, uh, continues to grow and their audience building activity is uh, rewarded really well. Well, we'll have to leave it there, but I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that and more in this booming creator yeah. economy. Robert Kinsel. Thank you.
And Netflix on a record run, the streaming service posting gains for 14 out of the last 15 trading sessions. The double digit streak, the most for any 15 day period since Netflix went public back in May of 20, 2002. The jump comes on the heels of Apple announcing it would allow media apps such as Netflix to skirt its 30% commission fee after a settlement with Japan's Fair Trade Commission. And Wednesday's announcement that Seinfeld would begin airing on the service beginning October 1st. That's two years after acquiring the global rights from Sony in a $500 million five-year deal. John, so much going on for Netflix right now. And we can't forget the fact that there are more movies hitting the service this fall than in any other three-month period. Yeah. Before I even get to that, I got to go back to Robert Kitzel. Because first of all, great get, Julia, bring him to CNBC and to Tech Check. But 25% of YouTube is music. I mean, I hadn't heard that number before. We, we consider the flex in digital music across all these platforms. We've got to think about YouTube, not just in terms of the YouTube music subscribers and the lyric videos and all that, but also music used in videos. Uh, that's huge. But yes, uh, we're talking about Netflix and its run. I think we also got to think again about expectations right? Uh, Netflix had been sort of, you know, lumbering along a little bit stock-wise, and there was an expectation that this big content slate might give them a boost. That appears to be doing that. Also, Alphabet, a similar story. PagerDuty, we've been talking about, had been kind of underestimated. That's different from some of these other stocks that had been on monster runs all along. Yeah, that's right. But I just want to to return to that point about Netflix and YouTube. You know, for so long, there was this sense that Netflix was just going to own this one space of premium content with no ads. And then you were going to have YouTube be this provider uh, of ad supported short form content. YouTube has become such a player, not just with music, but the fact that they can get into the subscription business. Now we're going to have Netflix getting into the gaming business. The bigger these players get, John, the more they get into each other's backyards. Yeah, I'm not. I'm still not convinced that YouTube can do premium video subscription, though, the way that you know HBO has, Netflix clearly has, Disney has been able to spin up very quickly. YouTube's been working at it for a while, and you know what that Karate Kid, uh, you know that didn't work out. So may- maybe they'll figure out some other uh, library or play to work. All right, still to come this hour, Robinhood calls the SEC draconian as the agency mulls a ban on payment for order flow. Plus, keep your eye on Ether. We've been tracking that all week. Trading at levels not seen since May, on pace for its best week since early August. We're back in two. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check, bottom of the hour here. I'm John Fort with Julia Borston. In just a moment, we're going to have some interviews with the CEOs of PagerDuty and MongoDB. Both those stocks up double digits today. But first, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Rahel. Hi, John. Good morning. President Biden admits that he is disappointed. Today's August jobs report only showed a 235,000 increase in non-farm payrolls. 
While he says that more needs to be done to fight the Delta COVID variant, he also thinks that the nation's economic recovery has been durable and strong. Well, I know some wanted to see a larger number today, and so did I. What we've seen this year is a continued growth, month after month, in job creation. It's not just that I've added more jobs than any first-year president, in, any, in the first year of any president. It's that we've added jobs in every single one of my first seven job reports. Sources tell CNBC's David Faber that Kansas City Southern's board will probably start merger talks with Canadian Pacific. That's in response to regulatory problems with its current plan to be acquired by Canadian National for around $34 billion. Canadian Pacific had offered to pay $31 billion for Casey Southern. And Chevron's management has met with the same activist firm that won seats on ExxonMobil's board. But also, our David Faber saying that the firm, Engine Number 1, has met with many other oil companies and is not expected to make Chevron its next target. Interesting, nonetheless. John, I'll send it back to you. Yeah, bottom line, listen to David Faber. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, shares of pager duty surging, as we mentioned, uh, up about 11 percent uh, after a strong quarter, strong current quarter guidance that provider of digital operations management solutions delivering 33% revenue growth year over year. Joining us now exclusively, PagerDuty CEO, Jennifer Tejada. Jen, good to see you. If I recall, you said something like this was coming. You know, we talked about uh, how things were going heading into your event uh, early in the summer. So uh, how does this look? Is this what you expected? Is it stronger than you expected? And what's coming next as far as the demand environment? Well, it's great to see you, John and Julia. Thanks for having me this morning. And yeah, we, we pride ourselves in being a company that does what it says it's going to do. So I'm thrilled with the results. Our business has accelerated with revenue growing over 30%. Our enterprise business in particular is seeing a lot of momentum where we now serve over 65% of the Fortune 100 and more than 45% of the Fortune 500. And we're particularly excited about new user growth up 50% on the platform. And I think that's a reflection of some of these tailwinds we've talked about and anticipated in the past, digital acceleration, DevOps transformation, and cloud migration. And what we're seeing is as our customers kind of get into their new normal, they're reinvesting in strategic projects. And they really need to deliver on those brand experiences that their consumers are looking for and expectations are going up. So that bodes really well for us. But I'm really thrilled with our execution this quarter. I've been trying to say DevOps a lot over the past few quarters. People might have noticed. I mean, it's companies like you guys, Asana uh, as well. We've had on Atlassian. We were just mentioning yesterday tools for the people who are building software. What's the next frontier there strategically that's going to get you growing perhaps even faster than the category itself? Is it more M&A, which you've done uh, a bit of? Is it a different uh, mode of accelerating large customers? Well, you're absolutely right that developers have become incredibly influential across the business, and they continue to be champions for pager duty. And even with some of the uh, hot talent market that we've seen in the past, when developers move from one company to the next, that has historically boded well for PagerDuty because they bring PagerDuty with them. We really see automation being a big accelerator in our business. Developers expect solutions that will help them do their jobs more effectively, more quickly, and with more fidelity. And with a platform that's highly resilient at scale, we're able to meet both the interests of developers and also the requirements of very large enterprise. So I think automation is going to continue to be a big theme for us going forward, as is AI ops 
and, and security operations, as well as customer service ops. And what's interesting about customer service ops, we talked a little bit about Cloudflare yesterday, who uses PagerDuty across their entire engineering org, but also adopted PagerDuty in their customer service teams. We're seeing more of that developer mindset in different functions of the business. And so I think you can expect to see technology adoption accelerating. Yeah, Jennifer, I thought that Cloudflare note was so interesting. I'm wondering how important you think those partnerships and integrations will be going forward and how many more of them you think could be on the horizon. Well, our technology ecosystem is a deep defensive moat in my view. We now integrate to over 600 technologies in the marketplace, which make PagerDuty an easy platform to deploy and one that you can integrate deeply into your organization. It essentially becomes infrastructure for our customers. And that's been an area of investment for us for years and one that we're going to continue to invest in because we see integrations or connectors as the gateway to workflow automation. We also you know, recognize that our customers expect all of the different technology they use to work together seamlessly. They shouldn't have to rely on expensive rollouts and spending millions of dollars with systems integrators to get their platforms to work for them. So that's mm -hmm. going to continue to be an area of, of uh, innovation and investment for us. Jen, there's a fine line between buzzwords and real insights that investors need to understand to know where to put their money. And I think we can deliver on that. I hear a lot about uh, low code and no code and automation. You've done uh, some acquisition in the category of helping customers uh, to have automation in their business. What's the difference that allows a company to have the insight into what customers need to do the right kinds of investment in automation, to apply AI in ways that matter, that are going to get you uh, margin and uh, higher dollar contract values over time. Well, you nailed the point that when you deliver automation for customers, it has to be really easy for the user to apply and the user has to be able to see the benefit for them from an automation perspective, not just the benefit from the company. So when we acquired Rundeck, which allows us to not only automate upstream by detecting incidents and orchestrating work across the business, uh, Rundeck actually enables us to then apply automation downstream, help you automate the actual response to a major incident that can shut down your business or your revenue pretty readily. That automation is in service of people, not instead of people. And we think that's really important. It's also really intuitive and really easy to use. And that means you'll see faster adoption, which leads to faster growth and I think business acceleration. So you, I think you're gonna continue to see this theme of automation going forward, but I'd be looking for automation that users love and that users embrace. All right, we will continue to track it. Jen, thanks. Jen Tejada, CEO of PageDuty. Stock up 11% levels we hadn't seen since software, growth software was booming in general back in February. Jen, thanks. Thanks. It's great to see you both. And a quick programming note before we head to break. Tonight, join CNBC's Leslie Picker for a special on the fall reset. A closer look inside the five speculative corners of the market that have defined the investing landscape in 2021. That starts tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Don't miss it. And Tech Tech is back right after the break.
Welcome back. A group of gig workers taking to the streets in San Francisco protesting outside DoorDash CEO Tony Hsu's home yesterday. The gathering comes on the heels of a California judge ruling Prop 22 is unconstitutional. That state law exempts the likes of Uber, Lyft and DoorDash from having to classify drivers as employees. Protesters lined up caravan style in cars and walked with megaphones. A DoorDash spokesperson tells CNBC, quote, we know that yesterday's participants do not speak for the 91 percent of California dashers who want to remain independent contractors, unquote. The gig companies plan to appeal the judge's ruling on Pop 22, by the way, and we'll closely watch how this plays out. Meanwhile, gig companies, including Uber and Lyft, are trying to run the Prop 22 playbook in other states like Massachusetts and New York. Julia. And now turning to another company pushing back against some of its serious challenges this week, Robinhood, firing back at the SEC after the agency said it was considering a ban on the revenue stream that subsidizes the brokerage's zero commission business model. Robinhood's legal chief, Dan Gallagher, himself a former SEC commissioner, vowing to challenge the ban in court amid the news, calling a ban on payment for order flow draconian. Shares of Hood faltered after SEC chairman Gary Gensler said the payment for order flow plan was on the table, though rallying this morning on the company's response. Oh, it did rally. Now it's down about one and a half percent. Such payments for order flow accounted for roughly 80 percent of Robinhood's latest quarterly revenue. John, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that Robinhood is pushing back on this one. They couldn't function without it, right? Well, at least not in the near term, Julia. You know what this reminds me of is the freemium business model that we saw for so many companies, you know, uh, Box, Dropbox, et cetera, you know, start off giving people something for nothing, get the volume, get the customer base, be able to look at the data and then figure out how to layer more paid services on top of that. I think Robinhood is already hinting in that direction with its desire to sort of put on a suit and offer 401ks and things like that, not just kind of risky margin trades that it became and, you know, crypto trades that it became popular for. Yeah, John, uh, although the question is, is if they lost that payment for order flow, then would they even be able to hold on to those customers, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to have you got to have the free stuff for long enough to gather the crowd. I guess that's the idea. And plus uh, that, as you mentioned, is what's driving the business for now. Well, as we head to break, check out shares of DocuSign leading the NDX after an earnings beat also raised its full year guidance to see it up five percent. Meanwhile, the CEO of MongoDB, up even more than that, about 25%. Wow, after the break, don't go away. You know what happens when uh, adolescents come back from summer break and they've grown a foot? Well, that's what's happening to MongoDB stock this morning. See it there up 25% after earnings. The cloud management company seeing a boost after posting a narrower than expected adjusted loss for the second quarter and more than 75 million downloads over the last 12 months. In a CNBC exclusive, MongoDB CEO Dave Acheria joins us now. Dave, wow, um, quite an inflection for Atlas here in particular. 83% up year over year, now more than half well over half of total revenue. But, I mean, give us a sense of what's normal going forward for us. Of course, there was a boost to all kinds of things from COVID. Uh, How sustainable is the strength? Hi, John. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, What I'll tell you is that what we're hearing from customers is they need to move fast because they're feeling a lot of pressure 
either from people who are trying to disrupt their businesses or disruptors who are trying to disrupt the large incumbents. And the fastest way to move in this digital economy is being able to build applications quickly. And what customers have realized is the fastest way to build applications that transform the business is by using MongoDB. So we have all types of customers. We now have 29,000 customers. We have some of the largest brands in the world, uh, people like Toyota, AT&T, Morgan Stanley, Verizon, et cetera, as well as cutting edge startups and new breed companies like UiPath and DataRobot who are building their business on top of MongoDB. And that's what you're seeing in our results. It was the best quarter we've had to date. And you added 2,200 in the quarter. Are there bottlenecks? What prevents you from continuing to grow at ever faster rates? Is it a sales force? And I don't mean the company, I mean the actual people issue, or is that not uh, a problem? Is, is there a challenge serving larger customers and giving them the level of attention that they need to continue to grow? Well, what we've told our investors is that we are investing for growth, but there's clearly operational constraints. You can't hire a thousand salespeople in one quarter without making mistakes and without having more challenges. So we're trying to grow in a responsible way, but we're really investing in two big areas. One on product to continue to expand the footprint of our portfolio. And two, as you mentioned, in in our sales force. And we have three different channels, actually four. We have a field sales organization, we have an inside sales team, our self-serve business, and our partner channel. And we're investing in all those areas because it's such a big market that we're going after. And we have less than 2% of the market today. I thought it was interesting that MongoDB Atlas for Government received approval. And I'm wondering how important those types of deals will be for you going forward and what varieties of companies or government uh, agencies you think will be able to, to, help, to help try to maintain this kind of crazy growth you've seen in the past year? Well, Julia, we do know that uh, the government's been a longtime user of MongoDB from the commercial entities to even the intelligence and defense uh, organizations. And so we know there's a lot of demand for MongoDB for all the reasons, you know, large commercial and, and startups use MongoDB. And so the fact that we're getting you know, ready to be available in, in, in the GovCloud, be able to be uh, available as a cloud service, will only unlock more opportunity in that segment. And our, uh, we're invested in a, in a dedicated sales team for those sets of customers. And we're really excited about the opportunity that that presents for us. Uh, Dave, put the, <laughs> the jobs numbers that we got this morning into perspective for a growing innovator in tech, because you're talking about the challenge of not only getting the talent in the door, but then getting them up to speed quickly enough. Uh, how difficult is that in this tight labor market? What are the methods that are going to allow MongoDB to perhaps be more successful than, than others can be in solving that problem? Yeah, so we really pride ourselves in attracting the best of the best, both in terms of our product and technical expertise and software development talent, as well as our go-to-market expertise. And so, um, so we have a high bar, um, and hiring talent is not always easy, but luckily we've been very fortunate to, to find great people. We actually just recruited a new uh, uh, head of uh, recruiting who is coming from Amazon, who really knows how to scale recruiting to the next level. So we're really excited for her to take on a bigger role here to help us scale. And for us, keeping the talent bar is very, very high because at the end of the day, our business starts and stops with having great employees. I'm really privileged to work with a great set of people uh, who has helped us grow this quickly. Well, uh, moving the stock like this, I'm sure, won't hurt. Uh, Dave Itacheria, CEO of MongoDB, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Julia. And you don't have to limit your consumption of tech tech content to the 11 a.m. Eastern hour every day. We have a podcast. 
follow and subscribe and listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. Disney's new movie, Shang-Chi, bringing in nearly $9 million from Thursday night previews. The domestic box office that is less than Black Widow's $13 million Thursday open as the studio tries out something sort of new. It's Disney's first exclusive theatrical release since the pandemic. And unlike Black Widow, which is released simultaneously on Disney Plus for an additional $30 fee, uh, so this will be different there. But the box office will be closely watched as an indicator of demand in the face of rising COVID and also a sign of the potential impact of simultaneous digital release after Black Widow's box office declined after its opening weekend. We're also watching piracy of this film after recent piracy spikes of those simultaneous releases. And theater chains are hoping for a hit with shares of Cinemark and IMAX both down about 30 percent in the last three months. John, the film does have the advantage of very positive reviews, both from critics and audiences so far. Also got the advantage of a reunion of Aquafina and, and Michelle Yeoh from Crazy Rich Asians. Very different flick here, of course, Simu Liu from uh, the Netflix uh, kind of cult favorite, uh, I guess, uh, as well. But I think what's also interesting here with this film, Julia, is that it's the first Marvel movie not to get uh, at least an initial approval in China, which in a way I think shows the way the business and cultural winds have been blowing. Who knows if it eventually gets the nod over there, but for now it won't, and that'll hurt a bit. It will hurt a bit. Since 2013, Marvel movies have made between 10 and 20 percent of their box office in China. China is an increasingly important market, not just for Hollywood, but for Disney and Marvel in particular. But that doesn't mean that it won't eventually get a release date in China, John. Right. A lot of things might eventually happen business-wise in China, whether we're talking about movies or education or, goodness, cryptocurrency. Uh, who knows? Let's talk about this for a minute. Next week on Tech Check, don't miss a big interview. CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, and the head of Microsoft-owned LinkedIn, uh, that's Robert Roslansky, uh, Ryan Roslansky, sorry. They're both going to be here Thursday in the 11 a.m. hour. You can be sure with Ryan Roslansky and Satya Nadella, we're going to be talking not only a bit about hybrid work and approaches to the workplace, uh, but also about how software has allowed people to interact in different ways and perhaps what data and insights they are able uh, to pull there. That, that's all stuff I want to know. We'll see what they bring, Julia. I, I'm really looking forward to next week, and I think, obviously, you know, Microsoft has been at the forefront with Teams and the sort of transformation of the work from home hybrid work environment. Be very curious to see what trends they're seeing going into next year. Yeah. Uh, cloud. Uh, so important. We've just been talking about the changes in software with MongoDB, with PagerDuty this hour. Microsoft, of course, a much bigger company. That'll do it for us for the week. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely. 
positively FedEx. 